Welcome back to The Stack. This week, we speak with a pseudonymous friend and member of Urbit Asia, known only as Mortal Whack Deck, or Mertil, as he likes it pronounced. Mertil is a multilingualist, an expert in China and Japan, who is now developing on Urbit, and will also be in charge of what we are calling Urbit Asia University, an effort on Urbit to educate in the languages and history of East and Southeast Asia. Let's jump in, as we always do, in Medias Res. I, I, in Korean, I only know, obviously, Kamsamida, uh, yeah. and then Kesegi. Yeah, yeah. I, I can read Hangul, so that's that. I'll tell you what no my kidding. Japanese... What is your Japanese? Oh, yeah, no. give us all of the Japanese you know. No, this is going to be terrible, by the way. But I do know how to say... <laughs> <laughs> I know how to tell I know how to tell the the cab driver. So like my experience in Japan, I was a marine in Okinawa. Oh yeah, right, you were. Um and uh my total ability in Japanese is drunkenly uh this is a great place to start the podcast by the way. <laughs> okay. Um uh my ability in Japanese is that I can tell a a cab driver in Japanese when I'm drunk. I think it's 2995. I think that's what I'm say, saying. You tell me if I'm right. It's ni roko roko nonu. Is that right? That's 2667. It's nana, not nana. Whatever, man. Close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's so funny, too, because like I even <laughs> get you that. home. I must, yeah, like I must have said those numbers a million times, but I had no idea <laughs> which numbers. Like, I was pretty sure about two. But I had no idea what the other numbers were. So you're saying yeah. I, I was saying two six two six six seven? You are saying two six six two in a way. Okay, good. Well now I know. <laughs> you know, yeah. the last time I said those numbers must have been like fifteen. Let's see, that would have been oh my god, that was two thousand uh two thousand four, two thousand five. So wow. I haven't said those numbers in like sixteen years. Wow, it, it's amazing, way. like muscle memory. I, I actually do quite a bit of work in Korea, but um, the thing there is more than anywhere else in Asia, in my experience, people either speak no English whatsoever, or they speak it like they grew up in San Diego or something, um, because they probably did. Yeah, um, right. And so, yeah, so I, I only know enough to like start a bar fight in Wang Fujing. Um, which is the area of Beijing where all of the loser, I can't say loser, but like the, the richer kids who cannot get into university in, uh, in the U S go there to go to Chinese university. So. Right. But sorry, I have another one. I want to pass by you since you, since you speak Japanese, I, I have to, I have to tell you real quick, my, my other Japanese ability, and this is going to yeah. be really sad, but I was, I was in Okinawa and I was getting, I was getting start, I was getting my start in Okinawa. And, uh, I went out with, uh, a Marine who'd been there for a while and, uh, his Japanese girlfriend or Okinawan girlfriend, if you want to say. And, um, I, I said, uh, this, this girl asked me like, how much, how much Japanese do you speak? And I had been there for like maybe two weeks. And I said, I can say, um, sumimasen. I'm sure <laughs> I'm saying it wrong, but. But, no, no, excuse me, right? All yeah. right. So I can say excuse me, and I can say kutsu, which I think is uh shoe, right? Right. Right. Yeah, or I mean I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but anyway. So she said to me, so you can say sumimasen and kutsu. <laughs> and I was 
And I said, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I can say. And she said, why the hell would you ever need Thanks. to say sumimasen and kutsu? You need to learn some more Japanese. And I said, you never know, right, what could come up. And at that exact moment, I accidentally stepped on a Japanese person's shoe. <laughs> and I said, sumimasen kutsu. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those beautiful moments <laughs> that I'll never forget. <laughs> yeah. I think okay, like anyway. uh, Myrtle, the um, uh, quite. I mean, there's obviously like a lot of interest from people in learning Asian languages, especially Chinese. I don't, I don't know. It feels like actually it's a little bit less popular, um, at least in U.S. universities than it was. Very unpopular when I was studying, or relatively unpopular, and then it got very popular in all the Confucius institutes and everything. And now it seems to be a little bit less, but you still get people who say, um, oh, I want to learn some Mandarin. And as somebody myself who just ended up like bleeding for years uh, to get to the level that I did, which is nowhere near where you are, um, I kind of think, man, there, there are some that that's a long road to hope. But what do you what do you tell people when they approach you and say, "I I want to learn some Asian languages"? Right, right. So uh, yeah, you're right. That Chinese is uh, is less popular than it should in a way because uh, uh, not a lot of people want to learn Chinese. A lot of people think they need to learn Chinese. Right? It's this business thing that you think is going to make mm. you money, and it usually does it right. At some point, people learn that you know the cost of learning Chinese and the uh, the the profit of actually making money out of it is just doesn't really make it worthwhile. So a lot of people give up, and uh, I usually want to encourage people and tell them, "Hey, that's cool. You know, you should do this and do that." But uh, last time I looked at the stats, I think ninety-five percent of people didn't last a year. What was your motivation? My motivation. So uh, yeah, I've been in Asia like since I since I was eighteen. And I did Japan first, and then I went to an exchange in China, and I just liked it a lot. And I, I just like languages in general. Uh, Chinese does ha hasn't made me any money, or Jap well, Japanese has because I lived when I was living there, but not the fact that I spoke Japanese itself. Probably would have could have made better money staying in staying home. But uh, so did you. Did you learn kanji? So you learned kanji first and then learn that. So that's the Chinese characters used for Japanese. And I, I still don't, I can't comprehend how that works. But so you learned that first and then learn Chinese. Because to me, the, the biggest, by far the biggest obstacle and the reason that a lot of people give up is because it's, it's so, the, the level that you have to get to for literacy is so advanced that people can't kind of get to that point of passively picking up the language. Uh, and so, so it just makes Chinese very, very difficult. Exactly. And now this is an, an Urbit podcast, uh, an Urbit podcast, right? Uh, so I mm. would like to make the analogy with Hoon, you know, because a lot of people say, nah, Urbit's not going to go anywhere because it's too arcane, it's too hard, right? You have to learn Hoon to make apps in Urbit. And to a point, you know, there's a point to that. It's true that uh, a lot of, you know, developers are looked into Urbit and then were very um, enthusiastic about it. But then they, they saw the Hoon and they were like, oh, wow, no way I'm going to learn this. So they gave up. And that's quite similar to the feeling of a guy who, you know, watches some Kung Fu movie and wants to learn Chinese and then realizes he has to learn 5,000 characters and then he gave up. But we that's the beauty our, of it. Uh, 
people do learn Hoon, and a lot of people have, have been learning Hoon, and they, uh, people who like Hoon, they really like it. So uh, yeah. it's it's this barrier of entry, which can be bad in a way, but it can also be good because it uh, it encourages very enthusiastic people who are going to really go doing it to the end. But here's the difference in the analogy. Uh, I don't think you have people who actually are not very good at Hoon who go around telling people that they're fluent at it, right? Um, and like, if there's any, if there's, cause like, I'm super modest. Like I, I'll say, I mean, like my, chi my Chinese is, is not as good as yours, Myrtle. Um, but it's, it's pretty damn good for like a white guy and I can, I can read it well, just very rusty from speaking, but like, I, I never describe myself as fluent. Um, and like the number of people in government or business who kind of, they've taken Chinese for a year or two and just say, oh yeah, I'm fluent in Chinese. Like, um, who, who's, who's the guy, like, uh, even like, uh, Huntsman, the old ambassador, like his Chinese was terrible. Um, yeah. so it's just like it, it, that, that I find like super obnoxious and I've never, I've never seen anybody do it with whom. I, I agree. I agree. But that happens with language, with human languages against, uh, programming languages and uh, I was a linguist before I was a pro uh, programmer and the good thing about programming languages is that you can you can't say you know I'm fluent at uh, Haskell or at uh, Rust and then not show something you've made right so if you say I'm fluent in Hoon people are going to ask you oh well what, what have you made with it and, uh, and then if you're not really fluent at Hoon then people aren't going to catch you but if you say you're fluent in Swahili and then people say oh that's cool Right, and, and you yeah. say jumbo, jumbo buana, right? Yeah, yeah jumbo buana. Oh, why they say something? Then you make something up, and how, how, how are they gonna know, right? So, what have you made in Hoon? Shall we talk I about that? No, no, I haven't made anything in Hoon. I'm not a, I'm not a Hooner yet, but uh, I guess I will get into it. As of now, I am. A, well, I am a developer. I code in Elixir mostly, and come from the Ruby world too. And uh, yeah, uh, we could talk about that too. Um, um, you don't have to be a Hooner to be an Orbit developer. That's one of the good things about Orbit too. You know, if you want to go all in, you can learn Hoon and make uh, low-level apps, but you can also use the uh, the uh, airlocks, the HTTP uh, API interface, and make uh, you can make apps in any language you want, and you can just make them uh, hook up with your Orbit ship. And that's what I've been working so on. So you recently. put in, you put in a a grand proposal. Right, and I, I think you said you you got accepted or or no? Yes, it, it just it got accepted a couple of days ago. I'm very excited about that. So yeah, so uh, Orbit has this thing called the Airlog, which is a very good way of calling it, which is the uh, the API. Right? You can interact with any Orbit ship by uh, by just using the, the REST API, calling some endpoints, and uh, you can get all the data that Orbit uses from for that. And I think the first API to be published was in Python. And that's been around for some uh, about a year now, and that's very useful. It's uh, some uh, some stuff being built on, and there's also um, a Haskell API and a Go API. There's a lot of things, and uh, I saw that, that the language I'm best at, which is Elixir, and I did have an API, and uh, well, I thought there was a chance to uh, get a grant and uh, have a chance to contribute something to the uh, community. Why did you choose Elixir? What's a, what's Elixir good for that? Um, All right, so Elixir is, is uh, I think it's about, it's been around for 10 years now. It's a kind of a niche language. It's uh, it's a compiled uh, functional language and it's uh, built on, it compiles to Erlang, 
Erlang is this right. very uh, interesting language, which is was made by Ericsson some decades ago for the telecom infrastructure. So it has the best uh, concurrency in, in, in the market. And one famous app which is built on Erlang is uh, WhatsApp. WhatsApp is famous for oh, being right. built on Erlang and uh, apparently Erlang is so good at uh, handling uh, like uh, simultaneous connections that uh, WhatsApp can handle a billion simultaneous users using the app with only like 50 engineers. So Elixir is built on top of Erlang. It makes it, you know, it has a more modern syntax and a uh, very modern tooling. And what do you think it's going to allow people to do uh, with Urbit once you have that? The thing is, I come from the Ruby world, and Ruby is a very accessible language, very easy to learn, and very easy to make things with. But it's not a very fast language. It's kind of kind of wasteful, very slow. And mm -hmm. uh, Elixir itself was made by a, a core member of the uh, of the Ruby on Rails team. And uh, the thing about Elixir is that you can uh, save in server costs, so it makes it so much easier to handle heavier loads on a single server. And people who move mm -hmm. from uh, Ruby or, or from Python from Django to Elixir they usually see uh, savings in like 90% of server usage. So you can run an app which used to use 100 servers and you can run the same app on 10. And Orbit is a server, right? So if you can make, you, I think that if Elixir is, if I make the API right and we can use the full power of Erlang, we can we can handle very heavy apps on a single Orbit ship. So that's yeah, it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I. Because you know there's a web, somebody is working on a web RTC protocol on it. So things like that, I would imagine it would be useful um, for ma uh, making like so. multi-ship uh, things like that. Yeah, sure. Exactly. So I, 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 I've been playing with a with a Ruby API. I just made a simple uh, interface for this. But you know, if you have a big group, say 500 people, 1,000 people, or eventually, you know, if you run a, a heavy application on Orbit and you have like 10,000, 100,000 users, I don't think a normal system is going to be able to handle that load, right? So we need a way to uh, handle the low-level connection interface and then ship that into a, an Orbit ship. And I think Elixir can be uh, much better than that than most other mainstream languages. What's the um, what's the process like to, to get a grant? Oh yeah, so you, uh, you have to register on Orbit.org which was kind of weird, to be honest. I would expect that orbit.org would allow me to log in with my uh, Orbit ID, and sadly didn't yet. So I had to just register that with my email, and uh, yeah, then you uh, you add the proposal there, and it's kind of straightforward. Outside of this, uh, your your own grant, how active have you been with like uh, GitHub and working with other developers um, in the uh, in the community? Because I think my my own involvement in Urbit has been more social. Um, the only time I go on GitHub is to register some like minor bug or something like that. Sometimes not so minor. But the uh, uh, like, how how have you found working with uh, some of the devs in the community? Well, I haven't been uh, much active at all, to be honest. I, I've been on Orbit for six months now, and I have a couple of uh, groups. I think the biggest group I have is about uh, choral music. So in the whole sea shanty thing on... on uh, yeah. Where did that go? Tick? Yeah. Yeah, the group is active. It uh, could be livelier, but, uh, you know, the whole uh, TikTok thing with people singing all the time was, uh, was getting viral, and I thought, you know, we should do this in Orbit. But now we have a way of singing in Orbit. But you know, I thought it was a, a good thing to get started, and uh, we do have a, 
a notebook and some links so people can uh, put the music there. Yeah, but I, I mean, I've been playing with Orbit for a while, but not too much to be honest. And uh, I, had, I hadn't been developing a lot. I did find a small bug on Landscape a week ago. And I did uh, make a pull request to, to fix that. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Matilda, I think it was the landscape chief. She was very uh, nice and told me to uh, the syntax of how Orbit uh, pull requests work. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't say I'm very familiar with all of them, but uh, they've been very nice and polite. Fair enough. The um, uh, So Orbit Asia University, though, I think that's what it's called. Um, I saw, so I mean, you've got lots of chats for lots of different languages. Do you speak all of them? Uh, yes, of course. Ah, come on. Uh, I do speak some of all of them. And uh, I'm not going to be able to teach Burmese, say, but, uh, you know, if at some point we have a lot of Burmese people in, in Urbit, through Urbit Asia, I'll be very happy to, uh, to learn some more. You can, you can uh, be the, well, let's say you're the dean of the school anyway, that's the case. But um, you teach or potentially could, could teach Chinese and Japanese, right? Yeah, so I have taught uh, Chinese, Japanese, uh, some Korean, and uh, I do speak some Thai, some Viet, and a lot though. But uh, yeah, the idea is to have, I mean, I'm the dean, but I have to be the single teacher, right? Eventually we will have teachers and uh, yeah, teacher assistants and a whole community of uh, people having up. Yeah, I I got um, in Bahasa Malayo, uh, not too proficient, but not bad. I think that's probably the easiest language for a native English speaker to learn because it's like Chinese. The syntax is very, uh, very similar and you don't have any like inflection or anything. Uh, so it's just uh, and there's no Chinese characters. So that was why, of course, I've forgotten all, uh, almost all of it, but that, that was nice to see on the list. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I didn't speak it. I, you know, it is the thing, right? It's, it's kind of too easy for me. I find that, you know, there's no tones, right? Right. There's no tones, there's no characters, there's nothing weird to it. So I just never found it too inspiring to learn. Also, it, <laughs> I mean, I do know some, some of the history. It's kind of an artificial language in a way. So people in Indonesia right. say they don't actually speak. Uh, Bahasa at home, they speak Javanese and speak this and that. And those right, local yeah, languages yeah. tend to be much more complicated. Like Malay is this lingua franca that developed in the area too. So all these different islands could get along. Yeah. What about, uh, so Chinese dialects, uh, they're called dialects. And you obviously as a linguist know that that's ridiculous. Um, but uh, no, no, what it, about it, it, like... It, it, it's not ridiculous. I mean, there's this definition about a dialect. A lot of languages are just dialect with an army and the navy. And I don't think Cantonese has an army in the Navy, so. Right. But I, I think it, it, to be fair, I mean, Cantonese and Mandarin Chinese are uh, not the same. Yeah. Yeah, they're not. Well, I, here's the thing. It's like, it, 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 but it, at the same time, I mean, like, I, I know a native Mandarin speaker who lives in Hong Kong, uh, especially if it's a lady and they watch a lot of soaps, they will get proficient in Cantonese much more quickly than, than I would. I mean, I could watch soaps forever and not, um, I mean, I would blow my brains out cause they're terrible, but the, um, 
you know, so, so there, there is that element, but anyways, I mean, like, so you, I think speak some Cantonese, what about like Hokkienese or, or Minahua or anything like that? I speak a bit of, a bit of everything really. Um, my country is a bit better because, uh, my country has a better built infrastructure. There's actually good shows in it. And, uh, there's a lot of great movies in Cantonese. So I can speak a bit and I do envision some Cantonese speakers going to hate on us for calling his language dialect, but you know, um, I, I don't want to get political. They're, they're very, I'm, they're very, they're entitled to be very fond of their own language, but I don't see. I mean, I don't see what the point snacks, on snacks, man. Excuse me. What about snacks? Cantonese snacks versus Mandarin snacks. Oh, was that real? I saw that tweet, but uh, I thought it was parody. <laughs> Is that actually real? Oh no, no, no. Was that real, that man. was that was. I think that was real. I, I mean, like people people are stupid. Um, what is it Even even retarded, but. I, I, I don't, it, 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 this is like, like, uh, very dumb. I, I think like, um, I'm curious though. What is but, Mandarin snack? I mean, like, like what did they bring it? Like Yabo and what, what was it? Well, oh, no, well, no, yeah. I mean, Yabo is, is Hubenese, right? <laughs> um, so that is, I don't right, know, like Pangolin. Pangolin <laughs> is Mandarin. I don't know. Um, what, 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 what's a Tompe snack? I have no idea. Uh, Manto. That's a snack. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. Like, like uh, you know, let's see. I, I actually, I was, I was just snacking on uh, nung liang, nung liang uh, yeah, it's some egg flavor. I don't know what is that. I, I'm really not a snack person. When I even when I'm no, I, 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 I'm just... not either. But yeah, 每天, 每天视频, 部分有限公司, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I no, I'm not a snack person. But I, I've been to uh, uh, like um want want when they would do their like uh annual general meeting for shareholders or whatever like crash right. that and they have like a ton of those rice cake crackers i'm not i'm not into it no i don't like all the jellies but the thing that's like funny to me is the uh like chinese will like say like oh like you know americans have such a sweet tooth or, or foreigners have such a sweet tooth and um yeah. eat to it and and like then it, like any snack or especially like any drink there is so disgustingly syrupy like you can't even get an unsweetened iced tea or something it's impossible so yeah, i don't know yeah, but they're convinced that they don't yeah that's the best you guys know what the but, but it's weird yeah, though right. so in, in japan you get japan has the best like non-sweet drinks in the world like they have all these amazing varieties of, of unsweetened tea and they sell them everywhere and it's all great but they do have a lot of cake shops and pancakes and stuff that China doesn't. Yeah. So you know, oh, I think no. like, I, th I think the amount of sugar that people take is mostly constant, but the the, the 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 means of taking that sugar in is different. Like in China, they take it through horribly sweetened milk tea, while in Japan right. they just uh, eat yeah. cake or donuts. And the the thing about oh, I I I don't know. I kind of want to get this information out there, but I think that um, so so the Chinese can do bread pretty well. But um, right. their ability to make cake is horrible. Uh, yeah. As low as it's terrible. Yeah. Oh my god! It's it like is, it is. It, it's it's. I think I don't know if they order it or if they make it themselves, but it is a tasteless slab. Uh, anyway, I don't know. Their their, their ability to bake a cake is is um. It's is, really uh, horrible, and uh, in Japan it's amazing. It's Japan has amazing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Thai, Thai, yeah, and then obviously like Taiwan as. Uh, pseudo colony of japan has some pretty good stuff yeah yeah 
Yeah, so uh, the, we, were um, talking about, we were talking about Orbit Asia University, but before that, uh, then you guys think we should talk about Orbit Asia itself. Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's talk All about right. it. So, yeah, Orbit Asia, what is right? It? So what, what is Orbit Asia? So now, now people will know, I think, that we've got three founding members of Orbit Asia, uh, exactly. Andy and I, and Myrtle as well. So what is Orbit Asia? Yeah, so why, why am I here, right? Why is this Myrtle guy who nobody knows on, on this amazing podcast, which has had uh, like a lot of long devs and really important people right so, <laughs> so what I, I, I i'm friend of i'm friend of the other guys on the podcast and what we are friends about is uh is orbit asia and uh orbit asia is uh is a what it's a crypto corporation what's the name for that is it a uh dow well DAO? yeah is i don't know is it anything is bros bros together making doing a thing i don't know i think we is need that, to we need to open up a macau bank account when I'm I'm finally over there uh, in a month or two, but are banks a thing anymore? I mean, isn't it all on, on the blockchain already? This is a good a good point. I yeah, it's it, it's I I do think that um, the uh, opportunity it was sort of like began as a joke, but um, the the structure of the corporation is is going to change a lot um and when you have i i don't think it's settled there and i can't predict how it is going to but what you can do with smart contracts and everything to um put assets in uh as urbit asia has with some azimuth space you know and and just i i don't know where it's going to go but yeah i mean banks in general, the the model at least will will change quite a bit. I think that there there's going to be some place for uh, financial intermediation or like wealth planning and stuff like that. But who who knows where it goes? Yeah. So on on orbit orbit has uh, what four billion planets? Yeah. And More than, yeah, people, over four billion. And some people were talking about you know that's too little because uh, there's not enough for all humanity, but as of now, Orbit is overwhelmingly a Western thing, right? And uh, we, you know, and the, the vast majority of, of, of humanity is in Asia. And uh, even though well, Orbit is, a, is, a, is mostly American technology, has so much other stuff. But uh, we thought that we have we have to bring Asia into Orbit, and that's the uh, the mission of of this corporation. Now it's going to be say, uh, yeah, we we have uh, as far as like formalizing it, we have. I think we're like the third, possibly the third star that has been put on a multi-sig. Uh, I don't know what Tlon does. I'm they, you know, behind the behind the scenes there, they may they may have a thousand like this, but publicly speaking, anyway, we're one of the few uh, who's put our our asset on a multi-sig. And I guess that we have to. Um, no, I'm happy to plug uh, Dalton and Sickdev who. Who and Rapsuff actually? The Dalton Collective helped us put our star onto a multi-sig, so it's it is a collectively owned asset, more than the three of us. And um, as you say, it's it, the mission is the mission is to get Urbit into Asia. I mean, what what are we going to do though? Like in your opinion, what 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 are the things that we need to be doing as Urbit Asia to to push Urbit into Asia? What do we? What's our mission? I mean, what what are the things that we have to do to achieve our mission? Our mission is to bring Asians into Orbit, right? And uh, it's a it's a big it's a big place. And uh, I would I mean every country is different, and it's going to be tricky to get people in. But I think in Japan people are going to be pretty receptive because Japanese are very uh, put a lot of very important very important into privacy. 
Yeah, so this Mastodon, right, is uh, self-hosted uh, Twitter kind of thing. Well, I think the yeah. less we say about why Mastodon is popular in Japan, the better, right? I won't say why, but it is popular, right? So. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> I mean, but that, that points out that, you know, there's some tech expertise, right? So There's, there's a market, who, yeah, sure. There's a market for that and there's an expertise for that. So, you know, if you go to with Urbi to, uh, you know, Myanmar today, and, you know, maybe they could use it, right, to, to, uh, because of this uh, army coup kind of thing. But it's going to be tricky, right, to get Burma into... into well, yeah, I mean, I think that they need, they need internet first. Exactly. The, um, the, but I think in China, it seems that, A, it would be like a meme energy thing in the sense that they, they'll get like very into blockchain um, or whatever uh, and be just, you know, buy everything that's related to it. Um, what is the like crypto community in Japan like right now? I mean, I know like Rakuten has uh, and that's a... Um, uh, kind of like an Amazon of Japan, but also has a mobile company. But they they have they offer a wallet, um, an exchange. I think um, so. It it seems like there's been you know a lighter regulatory touch. Korea has been very heavy handed. Um, so I but I don't know what 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 is it like in Japan in your view? Yeah, so Japan has been very light handed, and Japan has a huge crypto community, but it's not a community. Japan has a lot of people uh, investing in crypto, but the same way that rich Japanese don't show off, right? They try to be discreet and, you know, just buy a Lambo, but only drive it in the weekends. And there's no Reddit or people making money on Bitcoin in Japan and, and showing off and, you know, talking about their gains and making memes. And they just, you know, very silently put the money there and save it, I guess. So and are, they, are they launching? They're not launching tokens either, right? Exactly. There's no ICO community just or any, you know, uh, DEXs or anything. They just put their money in and make their games and shut up about it. So it's very hard to know. But there, there, are, there are statistics. And I think there was like, what, 12% of Japanese people own crypto, hmm. which is even more than in, than, than in the U.S. Right. And how much I don't think there's have... any, there's no particular barrier to getting into Japan. But what about um, China? What's it, what's it going to take to get urban into China with the sort of like weird, well, the, with the, with the weird, weird uh, regulatory environment in China, what's it going to take to move urban in China? It's going to be, it's going to be very tricky and uh, it would be amazing to get Chinese into orbit, but uh, yeah, I mean, anything foreign in China gets banned in a way. And we, we saw that recently with Clubhouse, like, you know, yeah, we've, you, we've talked about this, which is, is that um, there's a certain way that it, it has to be carefully marketed, carefully marketed to the, to the Chinese market. If it's going to happen, uh, you know, like how, how does it have to be marketed to the Chinese so that you can, you know, get enough people to buy it before, before it would get banned. You know what I mean? Like, we, so you get the network effect or whatever. Uh, like, how do you have to market it to, to China if you're going to get it in there? Right. I uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's gonna be tricky. And uh, again, I I want to. I, I don't think we should be like Facebook, right? And you know, go meet Xi Jinping and Doug Zuckerberg and offer to name our babies with his name or anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that did. That also didn't. I mean, like that was like the most retarded, among the most <laughs> retarded was, things ever. It, it like, really uh, was painful. Yeah. Painful to watch. It was painful, and uh, yeah, I mean, he just thought. But it didn't. It didn't work, right? 
Yeah. But I think, I mean, like the difference is, is, uh, you know, basically the only successful import substitution uh, industrial policy China has had has been in the internet and it allowed them to develop the like BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Alibaba would have happened anyways, I think, but um, right. They, they, they got to, they got to have this robust domestic uh, industry. And like, even now, you know, um, you know, Facebook would be desperate, whatever they say, they would be desperate to get into the market with like Instagram or whatever, but I think it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. But I mean, it, at the fundamental level though, and maybe my mental model of, of urban is wrong, but you know, yeah. If you think about like landscape and kind of the chat app and everything, maybe that would be something that might be sensitive, but at, at the bottom level, it's just address space. And that, should not be something that uh, is really threatening to the Chinese authorities, I would think. But I, what's your view? At a, at a level, uh, it does fit with the general uh, like uh, regulatory aims on recent years. So at a point, China just wanted to catch up with the West, right? They wanted to own their own Amazon and their own chats, and they wanted their own infrastructure. So they copied everything, right? So WeChat started as a copy of QQ, right? I don't know, of ICQ, sorry. ICQ became uh, QQ and QQ then became uh, WeChat and uh, Alibaba. QQ, was, QQ didn't become any, QQ is still around. I mean, that's like uh, elderly it is, it is. boomers and like it's, countryside people, yeah. It's actually, it's actually a completely isolated department of, of Tencent, but you know, Tencent was QQ and QQ was a, a copy of ICQ. And uh, so yeah, China wanted to copy everything the West had, but China now has everything the West has. They don't have to catch up anymore. At least software-wise, they have everything. And at some level, they have better stuff than we do. Yeah, oh, yeah we payments. And yeah. so what? Uh, and you know, Orbit, WeChat was uh, was um, was an inspiration for Orbit in many ways, right? And uh, I think Galen has talked about yes. that a lot. Yeah, so, yes. uh, we're at the level that China doesn't have to catch up anymore. So the, what the Chinese government now wants to do is to uh, to crack down on the oligarchs in a way. Right. They now think mm-hmm. that you know Tencent and Alibaba and all these companies, you know, it's an oligarchy, and they want to cut them down because China is a communist country, good and bad. And you know, Orbit's mission in a way of that everybody having its own private individual server, you know, that's a communist idea in a way. We don't depend on on you know on business owners taking off our uh, our our labor gains, right? In a way. So if you could sell, you know, you can sell Orbit in Marxist-Leninist uh, rhetoric in a way. The dialectic uh, can be adapted, yeah. No, I mean, That's going to be our first Dialectic of verbs. I mean, and, and American people are going to be very tricky about that, but the whole individual ethos that, you know, there's a lot of Marxism that is, wasn't about Soviet control. It's about, it's about giving power to back to the community. And Orbit does allow that. Right. I don't know if that's going to be persuasive to the Politburo, probably not. But the idea of, you know, cracking down on big tech is something that I think the Chinese government can get behind. Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is interesting. Um, and this is sort of tangential to the discussion, but I, I agree with you. And I think like the, the number one thing that China the, should say, when I say China, I mean the leadership um, wants to avoid is obviously like the the soviet collapse and they see gorbachev is like having sold out or whatever 
Um, but the thing that makes them very nervous is that whole oligarchy situation that emerged out of it. And, you know, you have actually now like a lot of Chinese industry that's, you know, struggling, um, but they would never never do the like cash for shares type stuff, um, you know, and reforming the companies so that, you know, oligarchs can emerge out of it. So back to uh, the university, Urban yeah. Asia University, I think that's what we're calling it. So yeah, um, I think, I think for the, the, at the beginning, it's kind of, um, we have you as an expert in two languages, at least, possibly more, but at least two that, that you're comfortable at a very, very high level. And then so what do you what do you see unfolding for Urban Asia University in the future? Well, yeah, there's no shortage of uh, like language learning apps out there, right? And having yep. one in, you know, having a community in Orbit is not just to have a community to chat around, but we do need some uh, killer apps, some comparative advantage at, at the app level. And uh, well, Orbit is your own service. So Orbit should be better at you know tracking progress and adding stuff you know if you want to add some movie that you like but the app doesn't offer you can put it because it's your orbit and you put what you want there and uh yeah we've also been uh testing there's a uh, space repetition so this anki kind of thing there's an app already built for orbit. Yeah, so little wolfer i think is that right he's, he's the guy who, who built that um yeah. we've been talking to him a little bit Anyway, so space re- space repetition for people who we we've talked about this on the podcast before actually, but what it is is um it's a uh, there's Anki I think is a quite a famous one, but for people who need to learn facts, uh, you can sort of like you can do this very efficiently. Uh, there's some studies done done that allow people to understand that if you if you wait until you're just about to forget a fact uh, to review. So at the basically the 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 cusp or the moment that you're about to forget a fact, you if you see that as a review, um, that's like sort of the optimal moment to uh, review that fact. And exactly. uh, over over say twenty or thirty years, this has been turned into kind of a science where you get these what are called space repetition um, systems. Uh, yeah. It started off with, uh, well, I don't need to get in that, but the famous one is Anki. And um, Anki is a program that allows you to make all these cards and then sort of like review your cards. And it'll show you it'll show you the cards. So it has an algorithm that will show you the cards uh, at exactly the right time. And you can hear the, the audio of the, uh, you can add audio and pictures and things like that. So uh, I don't know, as a linguist, I don't know how you feel about this. I think that the community, I, I say the community, but like the language learning community, uh, which I don't think either of us is really a part of, but just watching it, I think that people are really split about uh, do you need an do you need an SRS or not? And um, you and I have talked. I don't I don't think that like a formal SRS is how you learned any language. Is that right? And some people like it, some people don't, and uh, that's okay, right? People have different uh, learning experiences, and that's cool. The one thing I I mean, I do think that the, um, the the space repetition thing that the brain does work like that, right? You do need uh, consistent input, yeah, and uh, you want to time it in a way that you know to uh, enforce recall and just make sure that the brain actually stores that information. So that works in a way that you know some people do like you having a formal place where you just click on a, on a place and you have all these cards and there's all informally. And uh, the good thing about Orbit though is that you could track every single thing that your Orbit uh, is. You know, exposed to every single piece of data or message that you get. And you could have also uh, a more in, in, indirect way of pushing 
cards in a way, right? You could track every time, you know, a certain word or certain language has appeared on your Ruby feed in a way. You could feed that into your learning progress app or something. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you could do really. Yeah, so the point is that that um, one has been built and he's, I don't remember what the, what he, what it stands for, but it's called SRRS. And right. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm correct. It's a little, little Wolfer made this thing yeah. um, the last year, I think. And it's, it's fairly simple right now. It is an SRS. Um, basically, it's got like two fields, like, you know, the front of the card, the back of the card. And then we found out it's pretty, it's pretty trivial to add. It looks like it's pretty trivial to add like a picture and audio. If you have an S3, you know, if you have a bucket set up, you can fairly easily add audio and, and, and pictures. So they, it's, it seems that, that anyway, the point is that we're making this Urban Asia University. And the end goal is to actually make, to actually, actually, you know, sort of distribute this, this knowledge to people and add a, an entire like um, educational tracking system, I suppose you could say, or educational management system, something like that. Exactly. We are going to integrate uh, this SRS app on, on the university. And, uh, you know, at some point we might uh, enhance it and adapt it to our particular needs and uh, we can uh, distribute it as part of Urbid Asia hosting that will also come sometime this year. What do you see Urbid Asia doing sort of beyond that? So that's one thing, like education, spreading the word about Urbit as part of sort of like our educational mission, but what do you kind of like, do you see Urbit Asia doing anything else? Yeah, Urbit Asia is going to be hosting in, uh, in Asia and uh, it's going to be developing uh, apps for the Asian market. Which I mean, at some point, Orbit is gonna it's gonna branch, right? Because that's uh, the whole yeah. point about being distributed. Like Stars can offer um, application for their children, and uh, yeah, Orbit is just gonna be uh, a part of the ecosystem of many others, and it's gonna be it's gonna branch, and uh, you know, people who like it are gonna gonna pay to get in, and uh, people who leave will move to Orbit Europe or Orbit something or that, this and that. And by being in Asia, you know, we'll be exposed to different market needs, and that's going to push the ecosystem forward in ways that, you know, being all Silicon Valley wouldn't. We'll be able to, um, so I think that, I guess the thing that we can talk or say that that um, people, the founders of Urbit Asia, um, we've mentioned three of us, uh, I'll just say the founders of Urbit Asia, or, or urban Asia is sort of like uh, our uh, our our advantage in the market is we have people spread all over East Asia, and we have the major East Asian languages covered, and then you know expertise expertise ranging from let's say uh, finance to business to languages to you know just the connections right so. Right. Uh, urban, yeah, urban ages, and you know, and and also we have uh, developers and so on. And um, I guess the you know what we're bringing in there, or the ultimately what we want to bring in is is the ability to connect Asian business and developers to to Asia. We're like the we're we're the the API, I suppose, for for <laughs> yeah. for bringing Asia Asia to urban. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, maybe China has some particular uh, political environment, which is not too conducive for us to you know, sell billions of planets. But uh, in the same way that Bitcoin is regulated, but they still play with it, I'm sure that, uh, you know, having we're going to be the uh, biggest pathway onto the wider ecosystem. So let me just ask you this. Uh, where do you where do you see the 
future of of Urbit. What yeah. is your um, what's your sort of pitch for for learning about Urbit and then you know um, helping to de develop the Urbit environment? You know, every time you find a cool application or a cool website out there, and you have to register again and make a new account, and you're tired of all that, and every time you have to tell to a non very techy friend, like to your mother or your grandma, you know, about this app and you have to help her register and do this and that. Aren't you fed up of that? Let's, we have to get beyond that. And Urbit is exactly the way of having a new internet, which is yours and it's easy to use and you can do anything for you. And uh, it's just a no, no brainer for me. I just got into Urbit six months ago and I was blown away. This is the future. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack. <laughs>